Welcome. Good to see you guys. How are you this morning? Good. You guys got the most sleep, even though you lost an hour, so I hope you're doing pretty good. Um, as you can see, if you got any uh, junior high, high schooler, they're welcome to join the group heading out the back uh, as they have some programming uh, specific to them today. Um, if I haven't gotten to meet you, I'm Justin, the discipleship pastor, and I'm excited to be here as we wrap up our series on miracles. And as Sherry said, we're going to be talking about those couple of questions in our time today. But as we get started, would you just join me for a word of prayer? God, this morning, we thank you for just the opportunity to be together, to celebrate who you are as a larger community. And as we uh, read your word today, would you give us open hearts and minds? Would you show us where we need to respond and obey you? And God, in all of that, would you just, um, through your spirit, be at work, um, just in each person here as well? God, thank you just for the uh, opportunity to be together another Sunday. And again, just to celebrate who you are, what you've done in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, I want to share with you guys a um, story. Many of you probably uh, never heard of it. But in November 1984, Ed Wilkinson um, received the news that his son Brad, had uh, his eight-year-old son Brad, had an atrial septal defect which I didn't know what that was until I, I read about this story. But what that is, is it's a birth defect that causes a hole in the wall between the heart's upper chambers. Um, and it impairs the function of the heart as well as the lungs. And so when they found this out, they scheduled uh, surgery for the following June. And you can just imagine as a parent, kind of the worry as you're wondering what's going to happen, how are things going to go. Um, Brad, again, you know, little eight-year-old Brad, um, was worrying too. As the day got closer, he was even giving away some of his toys, not expecting to uh, get through the surgery in one piece. And he even asked his dad this question, am I going to die? When you think about that question as a parent, if your child ever asked you that. And Ed is, is a guy who wants to just always be truthful and upfront with his son. And so he said this, he said, not everyone facing heart surgery dies. But during heart surgery, that is always a possibility. So then Brad asks, can Jesus heal me? And I think Brad, you know, he kind of wrestled with this for a minute because he's wondering, you know, I don't want to give my son a sense of false hope. And he was a guy trained in neuropsychology and was very wary about people and had seen a lot of abuses, people saying faith cures it all. Um, and he didn't want to give his son any, any false hope. And so he just said this. He said, let me get back to you on that. And so for the next couple of days, he just prayed, and he was uh, thinking about, especially Philippians 4.13, and as he wrestled through this, here's the answer he came to that he told his son. He said, God does heal, but whether he would heal in Brad's case or not, they still had hope of eternal life in Jesus. So soon after this, um, Ed's pastor let him know the week before his son's surgery, they were actually going to have a visiting minister and that guy was going to be doing a healing service. And so he encouraged them, you know, you guys might want to think about attending. And so Ed, you know, was kind of wrestling through that, but decided, you know, why don't I take Brad and we'll go to this. And so the guy performing this was a Wesley Stilberg. And towards the end of the service, Stilberg asked for anyone who needed physical healing to come forward. And you can imagine, I mean, little eight-year-old Brad, kind of nervous, unsure if he wanted to go forward at first, but his dad encouraged him, and so he went Came, came up front, and Stilberg asked him just a few questions, and then just prayed a simple prayer of healing for him. 
The following Sunday, they, they traveled to the hospital where the surgery was going to be performed, and they did some initial tests. Um, after the test came back, they said, everything is the same, nothing has changed, and so they prepped him for his surgery the next day. Next morning, they, they took him back for his surgery, and the doctors told uh, Ed, this should be about a four to six hour surgery. And you can just imagine, I mean, for Ed and the family as they're nervous, just in the waiting room wondering how things are going to turn out. And then about an hour after they had taken Brad back, the surgeon, pulmonologist, and the risk management director come forward. And they want to talk with Ed. And you can just imagine, I mean, if you were there, just the way your mind would have been going, fearing for the worst, just worried, wondering what's going to happen. Is my, my little boy Okay. And so they just said, you know, let's go talk uh, in the back in one of the rooms. So they went down a hallway, came into this room, and up on the walls, they had these uh, films on there. And the surgeon pointed to the first one and said, can you see right there on the film and point to a spot where you could see a hole? And he was showing uh, their test from Sunday night, from the day before they got there. Uh, the, the test that they had done, it showed this is where the blood is leaking between the chambers, and then he pointed to a second film. And he said, this is the, the film that we took just before surgery. And in that same exact spot that there was a hole before, now there was a wall all of a sudden that had appeared. And Ed's just trying to take all this in. You know, he's not even quite sure what exactly they're saying in one sense because there's such shock. And so the surgeon just says, you can count this as a miracle. And the pulmonologist quickly jumped in. Somebody somewhere must have been praying and while this spontaneous closure sometimes happens in infants, it's almost unheard of in an eight-year-old boy. And yet Brad, he's alive today in his 30s, has a family of his own, and he's never had any, any heart problems since that healing. I mention that just as one example of the healings God still does today, the miracles God still does today. And I, I read about it in um, the book Greg mentioned, uh, I think last week or week before, there's this big two-volume set by a guy named Craig Keener, all on miracles. And it recounts miracles from ancient times all the way through to the present. And what I find astounding is you read a, vo a volume like that, or even um, there's a couple other books I looked at, and they just talk about throughout church history how God still does and has still done signs and wonders from the time of the apostles all the way through to the present. That is something God continues to do. Just a couple examples I want to give you. Um, I don't know where you're at, if that's something you fully embrace or not, but let me give you a few examples from church history. You go back a few hundred years from where we are now, you get to Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther, you probably remember, uh, started the Protestant Reformation, you know, pretty well-known guy. Well, he got a letter from a local pastor, and in 1545, he was writing his response to this pastor. The, the pastor asked him, you know, we have a guy in our congregation who's in need of healing. What should I do or, or how should I, you know, pray for him? And so Martin Luther gives him some specific steps, some things he can do. And then um, he just recounts at the very end of this about a guy that he prayed for in his area, Martin Luther, who had a similar condition and God healed him. And he mentions it as if it's, it's kind of no, no big deal. It's a commonplace, excuse me, commonplace thing that occurred. Uh, for him, it wasn't an abnormal thing, it seems like, from what he wrote to that pastor, but a normal thing God does. You go back a few hundred more years, you get to St. Francis of Assisi. He lived from 1181 to 1225. And St. Francis, he wrote about this one instance where he had a family that he knew, and the parents kept bugging him, kept asking for him to pray for their, their young son. 
Uh, their son was weak. He was lame. He couldn't walk. And uh, they just asked him, you know, would you just pray for him? And he resisted at first and then finally said, okay, I'll, I'll pray for him. And so he prayed. And after he finished praying for this young boy, the boy was healed and began walking around the house. You go further back in church history, you get to Augustine, uh, who lived in uh, 340 or 354 to 430. Augustine is uh, one of those major, major guys in church history. He was the Bishop of Hippo, um, and he was a guy who assembled and collected and systematized, kind of for the first time, really, a lot of our theology, our beliefs. And it's really what we've built on um, even today as well. So this was a guy who, who was smart. He was sharp. He knew a lot. And yet he was a guy at first, he didn't believe in miracles. Uh, he was this, this bishop of this area, but he didn't believe God still did miracles. And then he encountered this revival in North Africa, uh, one of the areas that he oversaw those churches. So he went to personally investigate what was going on there, and he was convinced that miracles were taking place. And so some years after that, he wrote The City of God, one of his uh, real famous works. And in it, he cites numerous instances that he witnessed and that he investigated where God did miracles. Just a few that he mentions are uh, healings involving breast cancer, paralysis, and blindness. And then I love what he said towards the end of that book. He said this, it's a simple fact that there is no lack of miracles even in our day. And the God who works the miracles we read of in the scriptures uses any means and manner he chooses. And what I just appreciate about Augustine is he came in as a, a skeptic, a guy who didn't believe, but because of what he encountered was thoroughly convinced and even wrote about this at the end of his life that God is still at work today um, in our world and in our lives as well. If you remember on the first week, Greg talked about kind of the distinction between miracles and providence. I just want to go back there for one second to make a point. Uh, Greg talked about how miracles are a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Whereas providence, that's God's regular actions, the things he does to guide and direct our world. But the point I don't want you to miss as he talked about that and as we've been talking about miracles is that whether God uses common means, you know, just through his providence, guiding and directing our lives, guiding and directing the world, or he uses uncommon, you know, some miracle that he does. What we want to say in either case is God is at work in our world today just as much as he was at work in the book of Acts with the apostles and the early church, that God is still active today, uh, doing what he wants to do, involved in our world and um, uh, active in our world today. And so I want to look at the first question, why don't we see more miracles in our lives today? Um, and I, I want to mention five things. This is not exhaustive, but I think some of the major reasons why we don't see more miracles First is this, is that we're not on the front lines. If you remember, Greg talked about how one of the primary reasons God does miracles and signs today is to authenticate the truth of the gospel um, and, and to really show God's kingdom, his rule, his reign is breaking forth into this world in a very visible way, a very practical way. And it's really an extension of, of what we read about in the book of Acts. In Acts uh, 14, it says this, the same thing happened at Iconium. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord, and notice this, and the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. 
And what we seem to see still today is the places where the gospel is advancing the most, where it's the darkest, you might say, and where the light is beginning to creep in, where the church is expanding and, and things are happening, are often the places where we see God most at work through miraculous signs and wonders. Uh, Greg even gave an example of people in our own body who went on a trip to, to Southeast Asia, an area where there's not a, a very established church. Um, it's a very small uh, church in that area, and the vast majority of people are not Christians. And yet they were there for medical work and to pray for the people there, and as they were there, they personally witnessed God showing up and doing some miracles in that darkness, in that dark place. And I just thought, you know, for us as American Christians, we don't see signs and wonders sometimes. I think partly because we're not always even sharing our faith. We're not proclaiming the good news, advancing the message as well. And so that's the first reason that we're not always seeing uh, God do more miracles. The second one, which is a huge one, I think where most of us are at, is we're not asking him. And that's a pretty broad statement, I know, but I think often we don't see more miracles is because we're not asking God or we don't believe God can really do it. I think whether we realize it or not, part of what's happened is we've adopted, at least partially, or been influenced by uh, kind of more a deistic worldview. Greg talked about this, I know, a few weeks back. But if you remember, the basic premise is this. God created the world, and then he kind of set it in motion, and he just is watching from a distance. He's not involved in the day-to-day stuff. He's not involved in our world today. That that's more of the deistic worldview, that it's, it's up to me really to, to uh, make things happen, I guess you could say. And before you just think, you know, that's not me. I believe God still is uh, active in our world today. Let me give you some symptoms of what it looks like if maybe this mindset's creeping in. First is this, you don't think about faith or God if you're not at church. You feel like it's completely up to you to make something happen or to turn out like you want it to. You make decisions on your own and don't pray about it or ask where the Bible says anything about this decision. You only talk to God or involve him when you have a problem or crisis. It's really kind of a last-ditch effort. Or the, the last one, if you do pray, you only talk to God about small things, things that tend to work themselves out on their own. And yet, if, if any of that you know, begins to creep into our minds, it's no wonder that we don't ask God to show up and to do something great in our lives, to, to break through and to provide an answer to something because we're not sure he can or if he will. And this was something uh, my wife Cammie and I even were talking about recently as we've been going through this series. Is I, I told her, um, as Greg has, has been leading us through this, just in my own life, how I began to realize, you know, what am I really praying for? And as I looked at my prayers, more often than not, what I was praying for were the very... Um, kind of menial things, you know, it's not that God's not interested in the small things, but it was often the things that will take care of themselves. You know, they're not really something that, like, if God shows up or doesn't show up, it's going to matter. And yet the areas where I feel like I need to pray, need to ask God, I wasn't. You know, almost fearful or not sure, should I ask? Uh, do Do I believe he really can show up and intervene here? And maybe you can identify with any of that struggle, kind of in your own life, of uh, seeking God and, and um, not being sure, you know, if what you're praying for is, is really big and bold enough. And yet I want to remind us all, Jesus reminded us to be persistent in our prayers, to ask him, knowing he's going to respond. In Matthew chapter 7, notice what he says. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. If you notice, Jesus gives these three examples 
Ask, seek, knock. Some translations, it might say, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And really what it's trying to do is bring out the, the Greek, which has kind of an active sense. You don't just pray and ask God once, and you're like, okay, I'm good, he knows. But Jesus is saying, be persistent. Keep asking, keep praying, keep seeking. And then notice what he says is going to happen. Ask, and it'll be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be opened. That there's, there's this assumption that God will respond. As you're persistent, as you're praying, God will answer. It may not be how you want it to be. It may not be the answer you want, I guess, in that sense. But God will respond. And then notice in verse 9 what it says. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? For those of you who are parents, I mean, you can identify with this, right? You've maybe had a time where your kids asked you for something that you thought, this isn't a good idea. You know, they want like a six-foot boa constrictor, and you're thinking, okay, this is a bad idea. This is not something I'm going to give you, or, you know, maybe it's a BB gun, or who knows kind of what it is. But as a parent, you're always thinking, what's best, right? What's best for them? And, and Jesus is making the point that as we ask God to respond, to respond to our prayers, that we can trust God will give us what's best, what's good, what's right, what's loving, even more so than we would for our own children, that we can trust in that. And so Jesus just says, be confident, keep praying. God will respond in his time and in his way. And yet as you wait, isn't it easy to start doubting? And maybe, maybe it's just me, but sometimes you're asking God to respond and to do something. And then you kind of begin to doubt. And maybe in your doubting, you think, well, is God going to answer this because now I'm doubting? And maybe he's not going to answer it because I'm doubting. Or maybe someone has told you before, you know, if you just have enough faith, God will respond and give you, you know, what you want. He's going to come through in that. And these were some of the questions I was thinking about wrestling through uh, as I was preparing for today. And I, I came across this passage in Mark chapter 6. And you don't need to turn there, but uh, you can just mark that down if you want to look at it later. Is, is Jesus in Mark 6, he's in his hometown. He's with the people that knew him well, that grew up with him, that, that he was kind of a common, common uh, person to them, I guess you could say. And there it talks about how Jesus was unable to perform the miracles that he did in other places. And I read that and I thought, well, was it they didn't have enough faith? You know, is that what it was? So Jesus couldn't respond to that? Like, is there a relationship between the two? Like, what is that? And as I looked a little further, it was, it was clear. The point wasn't that they had a little bit of faith and that wasn't enough faith, but it was that they lacked faith completely. And it talks about them having a hardness of heart. And so that's why Jesus didn't do these miracles in his hometown. They did other places. Just by way of a, a positive example, let me share with you Luke 17. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I don't know how many of you have seen a little, little mustard seed grain before, but I, I got one for the screen. I mean, notice how tiny and insignificant it is. If you were holding it in your fingers, you'd have to blow it way up like that. And Jesus says, if you had this tiny, insignificant faith like this mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And really the point Jesus is making is that the presence of faith is more important than the quantity. That just having faith in whatever measure is enough because of 
what you have faith in or who you have faith in. It's not about do I have enough faith, but who am I placing my faith in? Is that person, namely God, able to come through and to provide, to, to do um, immeasurably more, I guess, than we could ask or expect as Ephesians talks about. So we just need a little bit of trust is what Jesus is reminding us. Just a little bit of faith and God can do so much with that. And yet sometimes I, I just was thinking between services, we're kind of like the people in Jesus' hometown. I think the longer we walk with Christ, the more common he becomes. And we kind of forget who our God really is, all that he's done. If you look at the pages of scripture and believe what it says, let me just remind you about who our God is. This is a God who created the world and the universe out of nothing. This was the God who struck down the Egyptians with plagues and parted the Red Sea. This is the God who, uh, through the Israelites, as they marched around Jericho, then the walls just totally fell down. This is the God who provided an army of angels for Elijah when he was being opposed by the king of Aram who came through. This is the God who in the Old Testament as the Israelites were in the desert wandering about, God provided manna to take care of their needs, to feed them while they were there. This is the God who sent Christ to come and to live among us as a human being, to die for us because he loved us so much. This is the God we're praying to and offering our requests to. And yet, do your prayers and do my prayers reflect that same God? I, I know one thing I, I heard one time was the size of our prayers reflect the size of our God. And that's something, I mean, I, I've thought about preparing for this week is, are the things I'm praying so small that it doesn't even do justice to who God is, to all that he is? And yet, what does it say in Jeremiah? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Think about that question. Is anything too hard for me? I mean, is your marriage so broken God can't heal it? Are your circumstances so dire God can't come through and totally change them and redeem them? Is your illness so bad that he can't either do a miracle and heal you or provide through the doctors or just sustain you to go through it? Is anything too hard for God? I mean, do our prayers reflect this God that we worship and that we pursue? I mean, that's a challenge to me, hopefully a challenge to you, is, is am I asking this God for those things that maybe in one sense seem impossible, but I know God can do it. And whether or not he will do it, I can't presume or assume to know, but I know he can, and that shouldn't stop me from asking him to respond and to come through. And so that's the, the I know it's the second thing, but I think for most of us, I think the biggest area we probably struggle is, is are we really asking God? to show up in some of those places that you're not sure, if you were to be honest, if he really will or if he really can. But yet, if you just have that little bit of faith, you can trust God will respond. He may say no, he may say yes, he may say not now, but he will respond. Third thing, why well, we don't always see more miracles is we're unwilling to ask others to pray. And this is something I've been thinking about uh, during this series, is just in my own life even, and, and maybe you can identify with this, just the unwillingness sometimes to, to humble myself and to ask others to pray for me. To go before this great God that we worship and say, would you go before him and just pray for me? Pray for this situation. Pray for what's going on. Pray for God to break through in that. And I don't know what it is if we want to make it seem like, even as we're in church, that we all have it together, that we don't have those areas where we're struggling or broken or need God to step in. But that's a challenge to me and maybe a challenge to you. 
And yet James reminds us in chapter 5 of, of his book, he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has a great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. Notice this. James begins and he says, if you want to be healed, he says, first thing, confess your sins to each other. Now, I want to be clear here. James seems to be saying that in some instances, not in all instances, but in some instances, physical illness may be due to some kind of sin issue going on. And, and again, that's not in every case, and so I don't want you to mishear me on that. But in some cases, he seems to say, you're sick and you need to be healed because you haven't confessed that sin. But notice the, the second part of that. He says, confess your sins to each other, but then he also says, pray for each other that you may be healed. Just underscoring again the importance and the value of us praying for each other. And in case we've missed it, he goes on further. Notice at the end of the second line there, he says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. At first, you might read that and you might think, you know, righteous person, you know, that's, that's not me. You know, maybe that's Pastor Greg or, you know, one of the elders, you know, or some super saint, but that's not me. But James is, what he's saying here is that you're righteous because of what Christ has done, because you've been forgiven through what he's done and you're trusting in that. And so that enables you to be righteous. And so prayer in the hands of even the humblest believer, just with a little bit of faith, can do significant things. And again, in case we've missed it even to that point, he reminds us again about Elijah. Notice, Elijah was as human as we are. I mean, I love the way this translation puts it because James is, is, is trying to make the point. He was just as human as we are, and yet notice all that God did through his prayers. And again, it wasn't because of Elijah per se. It was because of who God is and what God was able to do and what God chose to do in the life of Elijah and through Elijah. And so it just underscores the importance of, of asking others, pray for us, pray for me, seek that out, humble yourself. And I think part of the reason why he does that is because God's not just interested in building my faith. He wants to build the faith of the community of people around me too so that their trust in God grows, not just my trust. I know um, one of the things we do in our small group every December is we uh, talk about, um, kind of as a group, where we've seen each other grow. But the other thing we also do is I look back at our prayer requests for the year. And then I'll share some of the different answers God's given us as a group. You know, many times it's not even necessarily something with me, but just as a group for the things we've been praying about. And what it always does to my faith is it makes me want to pray and trust God in a greater way because I see how he's responded to us as a group, as he's come through time after time in other people's lives. Just a, another example is the last uh, couple weeks, there's been two stories that I know of, there might be more, where people were willing to humble themselves and just seek some prayer, come up to the front at the end of service or during the last song. And uh, either that day or within the next few days, what they asked for prayer about was answered. And now you might just think, well, that was just coincidence, it just happened, you know, like God was going to do it anyways. But I really think there's something to that, that God's really about building our faith collectively, and sometimes he waits to respond 
until we're willing to humble ourselves and gather people around us and say, hey, pray for me. You know, my faith might be small and it might be weak, but together as we all seek God, as we ask for him to intervene, maybe, just maybe he'll intervene in this situation and, and do something miraculous. Fourth reason why we don't see more miracles is we can have the wrong motivation. And we need to be careful because sometimes in seeking a miracle, seeking an, in seeking an answer to our prayer, we can forget who it is that provides that answer, that provides that miracle. We can be chasing after kind of the phenomena instead of the one who empowers, enables, and performs uh, miracles. One of the guys in the, the book of Acts that did this is Simon. Uh, I think Greg talked about him um, a few weeks back. But Simon lived in Samaria. He was well known. Uh, they called him Simon the, the sorcerer. He was great. Uh, people uh, looked at him as, as famous. This is a guy that could do some incredible things. And then Philip comes onto the scene, and, and Philip is proclaiming the good news about Jesus and about what he's done. And in conjunction with that, he's performing some miraculous signs and wonders. So much so that Simon sees that and goes, Wow. That's pretty amazing. You know, I can do some pretty amazing things, but that guy is doing some really incredible things, but yet he totally misses the boat on this. Notice what it says in Acts 8. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he totally missed this. He thought, you know, this is like a a power that I can purchase, and then I can do even greater things. I can make a bigger name for myself. I mean, almost like uh, looking at it as, as the force in Star Wars. You know, I can wield this to do whatever I want with. But he totally missed it, that it was the Spirit who was working through Philip to accomplish these miraculous things. And, and we need to be careful that we don't think, because I've, I've seen this in my own life, and maybe you have, that somehow we can compel or force God to do what we want him to do. To give us the answer that we want, even if it's maybe not what he wants for us. But nothing we can do can make God, um, we can't manipulate God is I guess the point I'm trying to make. And sometimes our will and God's will, they're, they're different. You know, what we want, what we pray for isn't always God's will. And sometimes his answer again is no or not yet or not now or I have something different in mind. It's not just the yes. And so we need to be careful about uh, manipulating God and, and thinking we can make him do what we want. The last thing I want to hit, and this is what I just was starting to touch on, is it's not always God's will for this particular situation. And that's sometimes why we don't see the miracles performed. You think of someone who God would have done a miracle for. And I think of uh, this, this man who planted churches, this man who performed miracles, this man who suffered persecution and was beaten on numerous occasions. I mean, a man we know by the Apostle Paul. And you think of all people who would have who've been healed and, and received that answer to prayer that he sought was Paul. And yet notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, because of what he had seen, what God has shown him, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
I want to point out a couple, couple things about this. So Paul talks about being given this thorn in the flesh, which there's some debate about, but it most likely seems like it's some kind of vision, uh, problem, disability of, of some sorts. And this term he uses, a uh, thorn in the flesh, would be a common one in their day to talk about some kind of excruciating physical pain. And you might read that and think, okay, so he had something physically wrong with him um, that gave him pain and then it subsided and it passed. But the term he uses right after that is he talks about messenger of Satan to harass me. That whole term harass me carries with it almost like somebody beating you up blow after blow, something recurring that happens more than once, not just a one-time thing. And so Paul seems to be saying this thing that was physically excruciating, it happened, but it reoccurred. It would come and go at different times. And so Paul asked God, God, would you heal me of this? He says, I asked him three times, and yet notice God's response, no. But it's not no, and that's it, suffer through it, good luck. God says, I'm still going to provide. And he says, I'm going to provide my grace. My grace is sufficient for you, or it's enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul realized, you know, God may have said no, but he's going to give me the grace to sustain me, to strengthen me, to take me through this as well. And sometimes that happens to us today too. God doesn't always give us the answer. It uh, seems like sometimes with physical healings, illnesses, sometimes he, he doesn't heal us as we may want him to. But God's promise is that he's going to provide his grace to sustain you, to get you through that. And I think often even in our suffering, God can use that to bring glory to him, to show others um, just something, I guess, amazing uh, through our suffering as well. So those are the five, five of the reasons I think we don't see more miracles. But there's one miracle that I think all of us can experience today. And that's the miracle of a changed life. In the, the book of Ezekiel and um, in the Gospels, we read about the new covenant, this new promise, this new agreement between God and man. And in it, there's this promise of a transformed life, this life that God changes from the inside out. In Ezekiel 36, it says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So notice God saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. You have a heart of stone, but I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then you're going to be able to obey me, not because of willpower or determination, but because I'm putting my spirit in you to help you obey, to empower you, to enable you to actually obey and follow my ways. And so God does a change in our hearts and ultimately transforms our lives. And I think a, a perfect example of this is the, the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. You, you might remember that story. Uh, it's in John chapter 4. And this woman... Um, apparently is uh, kind of ostracized from society, seems to be from the text. She's kind of living an immoral life. And she doesn't want to even be around people uh, because she comes to the well in the hottest part of the day. I mean, you wouldn't do that unless you wanted to avoid everybody and not be going to fill up for water. Uh, uh, you would want to go in the coolest part of the day rather than the hottest part instead. I mean, it just makes sense. But yet she goes there. When she goes to the well, she encounters Jesus. And as they interact, as they talk, her life begins to change. She goes back to the uh, people in Samaria and notice what happens. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
Notice her life was changed, and as she begins to share that with others, um, they begin to get intrigued and go, okay, what's, what's going on? We know this woman. We know what she's been through. We know who she is. And yet notice in verse 40 what it says. So when the Samaritans came to him, came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. They were intrigued by what they heard from her. And he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That she encountered Christ, her life changed. Others began to get intrigued and kind of interested, but then when they encountered Christ, their lives began to change too. And that's kind of the the amazing thing, the way God works, is he can do a miracle in your heart and in my heart and change our lives, but so often he uses that to change the lives of the people around us as well. Uh, one of the, the great examples of that I wanted to share with you in the last few minutes we have is um, uh, from Brent. Many of you know Brent, our Connections pastor. Uh, if you didn't, you saw him bow earlier, so you know he's the ham. Many of you don't know that he used to have hair, uh, so we got this nice photo from years ago. And probably more of you don't know his dad, Joe, and his uh, mom, Diane. But I wanted to share with you their story because I think it's a great example of the miracle of a changed life and the impact that that can have starting with one person and for the whole family. So Joe and Diane, they met in 1959. They fell in love. And 11 weeks later, on September 8th, they got married. About a year after that, they started their family and had three kids, Brent, Renee, and Jody. And life for them was pretty normal compared to other families at the time. When I asked Brent about his dad, what, what he was like, he said, he was a man of integrity. He was loyal, honest, had a strong work ethic. He was someone who taught the value of doing the right thing and respecting others, but he was also very firm when it came to discipline. So if he caught you cheating at a game, he would not let you play anymore. And I didn't get to ask him if that was personal experience or, you know, just something he saw. So that was, that was kind of growing up for Brent. So growing up, Joe and Diane, they instilled strong values in their kids, but church and God were really largely absent from their home. And then in 1979, God did a miracle in Brent's heart, and he gave his life to Christ. And as you can imagine, God began to change his life, change his heart. And within a few years, his mom and his sister Renee started attending church. And soon after that, they became Christians as well. In the years that followed, they eventually found their way here to Olive Branch. And uh, even though Joe wasn't a Christian, he started attending the church during those years with the rest of the family. And if you would have seen Joe at the time, you would have assumed, and and Brent mentioned this to me, you would have assumed Joe was a Christian because he lived a very moral life and he would even volunteer and help out from time to time at the church. But it was also the same sense of morality and integrity that were stumbling blocks for Joe. He didn't really see his need for God and wasn't even sure God existed. He figured that if God did exist, he'd let him into heaven because he was good enough. He couldn't reconcile that being good and teaching his family to be good to be good people, could result in being condemned to hell and eternal punishment. Any God that could do that was not a just and loving God. Therefore, the God of the Bible could not exist. So for year after year, Joe was just set in his beliefs and his ways, and yet people prayed. You know, many, many people over the year prayed for him, prayed for God to do a miracle in his life. Then in the middle of 2006, Brent went out to breakfast with his dad, and let me share with you in his words what he said next. Brent said, I told my dad one day after he and I went out for breakfast that I could understand him not believing in God 
if he had done research, studied, and had a reasonable account of why he disavows the existence of God. But to just say there is no God and leave it there, this was too important a decision to not take it seriously. I met with him for a few months every Saturday morning, answering his questions and asking a few of my own, and saw him wrestling and grasping for answers. There were a few aha moments where he was stumped, and I thought, this is it. This is when he's going to break down. But he was resilient. Time continued to pass by, and even as Brent was encouraged about what he saw, he still wondered when, or even if, his dad would ever become a Christian. And then out of the blue, in January 2008, Brent got a call one night and found out that his dad had given his life to Christ after he received the letter, uh, read a letter that Brent's sister had written to him that talked about him as a dad, about eternity, about what it would mean for her to be able to spend eternity with him and the rest of the family. Upon reading the letter, he broke down sobbing, which Brent said his dad would rarely show that kind of emotion. And he told his wife that he wanted to give his life to God right now. And so I asked Brent, you know, what, what's your dad's life been like since that initial decision to trust Christ? And, and here's what he said. He said, he became proactively interested in spiritual things. He was very excited to take communion for the first time. And he asked all his family to be there with him when he did. And then this I thought was, was pretty neat. He asked Brent to baptize him. And all the family to be there with him was excited, you know, about them celebrating that momentous occasion with him. And then shortly after that, Brent said his, his mom had a medical scare, and he wanted to pray over her as a family. And for the very first time in my life, I heard my father pray. My mom says he is almost always the first one to suggest prayer for meals. They do a devotional or Bible reading together, which my mom is ecstatic about, because she gets to share her spiritual life with the man she loves. He has grown much softer emotionally, more able to express his emotions, and is more tender. And this miracle that occurred in Joe's life, it didn't happen until he was 73 years old. And I think it's, it's a testimony to God's faithfulness, to answer those prayers over years and years and years of people that I'm sure at times wondered, is God going to answer this? Is he going to come through? Is he going to provide? And yet God was faithful in that. And yet I also can't forget about how God used the miracle in one man's life, first with Brent, to then impact the entire family over the years as well. And that's, that's the miracle that God offers to you and to me and the miracle that he often uses to change those around us as well. As we um, prepare to, to join the band in a song, would you just pray with me? God, you know the hearts and minds of each person here. And my prayer right now is that you would just be at work in each person, bringing conviction where it's needed, uh, bringing clarity of, of what you're calling each person to do. God, would you just show each person how you want them to respond to the message today? As we think about you, who you are, what you've done, as we think about how you provide, how you answer us, how you uh, answer the prayers of your community, and God, just even the miracle that you can do in each person's life as well. And so God, uh, we just commit these things to you and just ask again that you might be at work in each person's heart here right now as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.